Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. This is High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. Welcome along to the second episode of our new CEO series, which reveals the truth about leadership with top CEOs from across Europe. They will explain how they define, create and maintain culture within their business. We'll delve into their setbacks and their self-belief. This is CEOs disarmed, completely honest and deeply vulnerable. Now, last week, we were joined by the CEO of Aviva, Amanda Blanc. And I just want to let you know that I had an amazing message from a mum of three girls who told me that they listened to the Amanda Blanc episode um, on the way to school over the course of two or three days. And at the end of it, her three girls said to her, it's the first time they really believe they can do anything they want. And I think that is the ultimate endorsement of what these episodes are about and why it's so important that we have these diverse conversations with people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, who could inspire people listening to this. So, Annabelle, thank you very much for your message. Amanda, thank you for appearing on the first episode of our CEO series. Today, we welcome the CEO of Octopus Energy, Greg Jackson. Most energy companies, their strategy was pretend we don't exist, keep sending the bills and hope we get paid. But actually, you know, we've created this massive pink, purple, I don't really know, out there brand because we want to be loud and proud about how energy can make the world better and what we can do as part of that. I've got the opportunity to lead something at scale that can make the world better. And it feels like a a sort of a responsibility. It's really easy every day and every week to start with a to-do list, which is all the things that you have to do. The really hard bit, but the bit that's most important, is to create a to-do list of the stuff that's going to make the world different tomorrow than it was yesterday. But the pandemic was nothing compared to climate change. Climate change will wipe out our species and plenty of others if we don't do something about it. Now, this is a fascinating conversation. I need to point out right now that this was recorded before the current energy crisis, so we weren't able to speak to Greg about the situation we find ourselves in. But I'm really glad, actually, that we've been joined by a boss from one of the energy companies, because I think one of the issues we've got with society at the moment is that we love to put everyone in a box, in a bracket. And I think that all bosses of energy firms have been portrayed over the last few weeks as being uncaring, being out of touch, being fat cats, not understanding what you and I are having to go through to make sure that we've paid our bills at the moment. And the fact is that that's not the complete truth. As you're about to hear, Greg leads with compassion. His own family, when he was growing up, were unable to afford to heat their home. And I think that it's important that the people that are running our energy businesses genuinely know how hard it can be. And I'm very impressed by the way that his business has responded to the current energy crisis. And look, I'm not sitting here because this is some advert for his business. I'm not blind to the fact that it's his business's job, first and foremost, to make money. But what you're going to hear over the next hour or so is that he is a man who is leading an energy business with compassion, with heart and with understanding. And so much more needs to be done, not just by people like Greg and the energy industry, but by the government. So much more. People are going to really struggle this winter. But I also want you to hear him talk and really understand that there are people in that industry who care, who have a heart and who are doing what they can. 
So here we go. It's time for the second episode of this CEO series of the High Performance Podcast, which, by the way, is brought to you by PwC. And we were keen to work with PwC because they often set the bar for leadership, for culture, for inclusion and looking at the future of work. And their purpose is to build trust and solve important problems. And their global strategy, the new equation, is bringing this to life for their clients, people and society by combining technology with human ingenuity, passion and experience. They're looking to work with organisations to deliver more intelligent and sustained outcomes. So PwC, thank you for partnering with the High Performance Podcast. Thank you to Greg Jackson of Octopus Energy for agreeing to come on this episode. But most of all, thanks to you for coming to this with an open mind and a willingness to understand more. Let's do it then. Here's Greg Jackson on the High Performance Podcast. Well, Greg, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on High Performance. Let's start as we always do. What to you is high performance? I think very few of us are privileged to get to see real high performance alongside our own performance very often. But for me, I think about like when you're at school, there's the kid who was best at football, just so much better. No one could come close to them. And yet at county level, they may not even get a game. But the person who was best at county level might never make it to be a pro. And if they did make it to a pro, they probably wouldn't be in the premiership. And if they were in the premiership, they probably wouldn't be in the winning team. If they were the winning team, they probably wouldn't be the best player. Like the reality is that, you know, so the, the very top performers are so far ahead of our normal experience that I think we need to think about that if we want to set our sights high. And, and so I guess for me, a lot of the thing is about, for example, today, Octopus Energy's got you know, three point something million customers, maybe five or six billion pounds turnover, 3,000 employees. But actually, we're just 0.4% of the global energy market. We've got so much further to go. So let's take that mindset back then to when you were 16 years old and you dropped out of school to program video games. Now, part of you might have been, I am so self-assured and I'm so confident and I believe so much in my own abilities. I'm going to ignore my teachers. I'm going to ignore my parents. I'm going to take this path. Or there could have been a part of you that thought, I'm just totally confused. I'm totally lost. I'm really not enjoying school. I'm just going to try something else, which plays into what you just spoke about, where we don't really know how far life's going to take us. Which of the two was it? Actually, it was really for me, not being scared of failure. When we were very young, you know, when I was primary school and some of senior school, you know, we were really hard up. One of the things that inspired me to do this is that mum couldn't always pay the bills um, uh, as a single mum with three kids. And I, and I think when you've experienced being really hard up, you're kind of not scared of failure. And there's a tremendous strength in that because you know that the worst it gets, you can still be okay. And I think sometimes, like you know, kind of what holds people back is that kind of fear that they're going to lose what they've got. But if you're confident that you'll be okay with nothing, then I think that's a really great strength. And, and so for me, I, I didn't really worry about the downside, but I thought there was something I was going to enjoy. I might be good at it, and it was fun. So what was the worst that it got then, Greg? First of all, astonishing kudos to my mum. She had three kids. The youngest was a year old when she became a single mum. And, uh, you know, I remember getting on the bus to go into town. It was in Halifax at the time. Um, and come back with the shopping. And she's four foot eight, my mum. And she's carrying like, you know, the week's food in carrier bags with three kids, including a baby, on the bus. Um, and then in the evening, she'd work as a barmaid to earn enough money to, to, to keep the, 
you know, food on the table. You know, there's not always enough. And, and we got cut off. I, I remember back then a guy with a wrench would turn up to cut off your gas, a water bill. And, the, you know, mum was just too scared to open it. And I remember opening it as a sort of... How old were you when you were opening these bills? I was about 11. Um, wow. And it was a court summons. And, and you suddenly realise how those processes work from, from that end. Now, my mum worked unbelievably hard. She, she not only did all that, she then got a degree and got a job in teaching and, and, and eventually, like, you know, turned our family's prospects around. But the resilience we learned then and the impact of the hard work, you know, as, as she did, like, bringing up the kids, then working in a bar, studying the sort of lot. And then, by the way, she was out campaigning for the causes she believed in. Anyone who thinks they're busy, I guess that's my mum's version. And at the other end, you've got people like Elon Musk, not only building the company that is making the electric car revolution a reality globally, but also, by the way, doing reusable rockets. And then as a sideline, space-based internet. Oh, and by the way, you know, the, the, the tunnels for Hyperloop and, and travel. Uh, you know, I think we've all got capacity to, to achieve and, and do far more than we realise but for me, there's two very different role models there. So one of our favourite questions, Greg, is to ask uh, our interviewees the question of what ghosts from your childhood still rattle around your adult body and some of those experiences you've just described of opening that court summons and seeing your mum struggling with three of you have obviously had quite a significant effect. What lessons did you learn at that young age that, you would still recognise today as the CEO of Octopus? I have a real fear of not working as hard as is possible. What my mum used to do, there was never a moment to relax. It was just relentless. And I think for me, like, I, I have that. Um, I, was at, I was at dinner at a relative's house and we'd just finished dinner and I got my laptop out and he said, surely someone else can do that. I was like, maybe, but if someone else did this, I'd just do the next thing on the list. You know, and it's that kind of um, relentless need to be working towards something, whether it be, by the way, it could be business, it can be um, something, um, you know, voluntary or whatever. But yeah, that that is huge. And I know you've got two children from a previous partner. How hard is it to have a relationship with them or, or even to sustain a relationship with a partner when you have this mindset? Because I think young people are growing up in a world where they're told, be relentless, give it everything, make every sacrifice, go out there and be successful. But we also have to have the conversation that if that is the mindset, then there is collateral damage, isn't there? So I think it's incredibly important. One of the ghosts of my childhood actually is, you know, my dad wasn't there and I never want to be that for my boys. So even though I'm not there with their mums, I have them 40% of the time. I leave work early uh, on a Wednesday to pick the youngest one from school and spend the evening with them and on Tuesday to spend time with the eldest one and to be present. And then every other weekend, and I try to be present the whole time. Now, actually, as we're going through the energy crisis, sometimes some of the discipline there is harder to maintain. So I have to talk to the sort of stakeholders when I've got the boys. But, you know, I'll be there cooking for them to show, you know, to do something for them while chatting with them, whilst having really important conversations. But I'm exposing them to that so that at least what I'm not doing is not, you know, even if I can't be dealing with them, I'm thinking of them and, and, and making it part of their world. But that is absolutely religious for me. And, and in terms of, you know, kind of how I feel about that, my ex-partner, the, the mother of, of um, one of them, she said to me, what do you want for our son? What, what characteristic do you want? 
I said, I want him to be happy and confident. And she said, what about drive? Don't you want to have drive? And I said, no, I've got drive and I'm not sure it's always good for you. And I really mean that, you know, and I think, look, if you've got drive, make the most of it. But actually, we shouldn't wish some of these things on others. We, you know, balance is something that will make people happy. But then one of the things that I've observed with people that maybe come from more straightened circumstances like you've described is that as they go into their adult life, that drive is often the factor that, that makes them hungry, even when they're going food shopping. So enough is never enough. You know, they almost don't know where the limit is because they've experienced that need and that want. What lessons have you learned, Greg, about being able to set targets where, where you know that enough is enough? First of all, for me, it's not about acquisition. I learned right and wrong very early, or at least the version of right and wrong that my mum believed in. And questing for what's right is more important to me than questing for more. So, for example, in our business, right, there are decisions we could make that would be far more profitable, at least in the short term, maybe in the long term, but that I don't think are right. And so actually, for me, that is enough enough isn't about personal acquisition. It's about the mission that I'm privileged to lead. Although I've got to say, like, you know, within that mission, I find it very hard to stop. I've got the opportunity to lead something at scale that can make the world better. And it feels like a, a sort of a responsibility. And it's really hard to weigh that against what you do for yourself. And, and that's why I think the one, the red line for me is my boys. And that was the decision I made. Like, nothing breaks that red line, but everything else is, 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 is a trade-off. And I wonder whether this has a lot to do with your mum as well, because, you know, you said that she fought for the causes that she believed in. And you obviously are fighting as well with Octopus for a cause that you believe in. I don't want to guess on your net worth, right? But you own a chunk of a business that is turning over billions of pounds, right? Your net worth is probably in the hundreds of millions. Does it not even slightly dampen the desire when you have that amount of money potentially coming your way at some point or not? Is the desire to have an impact there as much as ever? Because I feel that people are living their lives going, as soon as I get a million pounds in the bank, then I can take my foot off the gas. As soon as I get that promotion, I can relax. But you're talking in a way that that's, that's not necessarily the way that your brain or lots of brains work. Yeah, look, first I'm lucky enough that previous businesses meant, you know, there's a degree of comfort anyway, regardless of Octopus. With Octopus, there's definitely a, a very large paper net worth. But the reality for me is, you know, when we hit the energy crisis, I reduced my salary to minimum wage because I wanted to make sure we, that, that I would contribute to our staff welfare and to our customer funds, you know, during this tough period. Uh, you know, thinking about stuff like that still matters to me a lot. But when it comes to like what motivates me, that, that potential wealth is pretty unimportant. I find that when I get demotivated, it's because we can't deliver our mission. So, you know, there are times when, for example, there might be uh, a new government policy or a regulatory scenario that makes it harder to do what we believe in. And they're the times I think like, you know, is it worth it? It's never about, it's, for, certainly for me, it's, it's literally never about the money. The people in the business, the relationships we have, what we do for customers and what we do for driving the energy revolution are all of the motivation. And I bet, I bet well, you, you mentioned, obviously we can talk about sport, right? I can't, I, not many footballers are motivated by the salary. I hear people saying like, but he's paid this much. Why can't he play harder? He's motivated by winning. He's motivated by being a hero. He's motivated by that perfect play. It's the business equivalent, you know? 
listening to you there, Greg, there seems like two skill sets that I'm intrigued to find out more about. One is keeping your feet on the ground so you can sort of relate to your team and to your customers. But you've also got to keep your head in the clouds a little bit to be able to set the sense of direction and know which way the winds are blowing to keep that mission on track. So how do you combine those two what can seem like disparate skills? First of all, I think on that one about the the mission, I think one of the hard things about being an entrepreneur is you have to do stuff that people say won't work. People say, oh, take advice from this person. You know, they used to run such and such a big company. Of course, you should listen to them. But ultimately, if you want to do stuff to move the boundaries, to build a, a business that is driving the change we need, a lot of what you do is the, is the opposite of what other people will tell you. And that's really difficult because sometimes you're going to be wrong. So this isn't stubbornness. It's not pig-headedness. But actually, and, 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 you know, look, I mentioned Elon Musk earlier, so I just mentioned him again. I mean, he spent a decade with every major car manufacturer in the world. And a lot of the press and a lot of the financiers saying this is lunacy. And now he gets invited, like every government is fawning over him to get him to come and build a factory in their country. And the entire global car fleet is going through a very rapid electrification because he had the confidence or the drive and he'd done the work to believe in what he was going to do. And I think in that bit about staying grounded, look, for example, um, in our office, it's all open plan. I sit with the team. The world provides lots of opportunities for people in positions of authority to pretend they're different, to, to pretend to themselves or pretend to everyone else. So, you know, the massive mahogany desk and, and, and sort of, you know, the biggest office in the building and, and a chauffeur and all that stuff, right? Some of it kind of makes sense. You need a bit of privacy sometimes for a serious meeting. You know, sometimes you, need to, you haven't got time to do all the calls and get public transport. You, you go in the back of a car. But all of that, if you do it in the way that is about creating a distance and a privilege from normality... I think you very quickly lose your feet on the ground. So for me, I kind of resist all those symbols. And I say to people, by the way, never fall for them. So, you know, if, if you're going to meet a senior business person, you know, their big mahogany desk is designed to create a sort of a power play between the two of you. Forget it. They're just a normal person. They go to the toilet just like you do. They get hungry like you do. We're all the same. And look, look, this interview, if I was to just describe you to people, Greg, you're, you're in a very relaxed grey T-shirt, you know, your hair is kind of like, I wouldn't say scruffy, but it's not been worked on to look perfect <laughs> in the sort of corporate setting that you exist. Is there, is there any part of you that has ever succumbed to being like, oh, I better put a shirt and tie on, I better make sure I've got a nice side parting so that I look and act and seem like every other CEO? Because you will go for meetings with other CEOs and you will, by default, look different? You know what, it's a, it's a good question because I think for me, authenticity is so important. And, and, and what a lot of the kind of corporate presentation about is about trying to look like something else. By the way, if someone's comfortable in a shirt and tie, that's fantastic. But for me, I'll go as far as I can by being authentic. And, and Part of that then, for example, um, yeah, where do I draw the line? So I was appearing before a common select committee and I was saying to our team, look, is it okay to wear jeans and t-shirt? Will they boot me out or is it too disrespectful? And, and we agreed that putting a, a jacket over the t-shirt made it okay, right? So, and, and I'd even wear a shirt sometimes, draw the line at a tie, right? But, but I think, and, and I know this sounds like, you know, potentially this is quite small stuff, but part of it is about trying to create a world where we are more equal 
and we're more able to have a conversation about the person we really are and who we're bringing to the table. Because I think, you know, all of those power dynamics, some of which are obvious and some of which are hidden, they really reduce the confidence of people who are new in the room or, you know, people who weren't, didn't go to the right school, right? If you didn't go to the right school and you don't know what manufacturer shirt that all the other people in the office are wearing, it's one of the barriers to social mobility, but it's also the barrier to progress and growth and innovation in our society. Uh, the other thing, by the way, is, you know, you go to Silicon Valley, you probably wouldn't be letting if you did wear a tie. <laughs> so that wisdom that you've acquired seems pretty hard won. Have there ever been times where, where you feel like you've been less than true to yourself or you've lacked that integrity? You know what? Um, one of the best moments in this business was when, my, when one of my close colleagues pulled me aside and she said, look, Greg, um, you're not being yourself. In fact, frankly, you know, you're not, you're not being a decent person. You're not acting with integrity. Um, and very briefly, what had happened was I'd started to be a bit dismissive of, of one or two things that people had said. And she said, look, that's not, that's not the Greg that I love working with and not the one that I joined to work with. And I can't tell you how grateful I was for that feedback because I hadn't really noticed it happening. And uh, yeah, so I think that made me more conscious of being true to myself rather than kind of living up to a, a stereotype. Had you noticed that you'd sort of lost yourself a bit or not? No. I, it was when she said it and she pointed out some examples. And by one thing for everyone, when you're giving feedback... You should always give examples because then people can relate to it. She just said, when you did that thing, and, and she was right. It's such a powerful thing when someone you respect and someone you know respects and likes you puts you right. Can you tell us what you did with the information? Yeah, I mean, I, I immediately, every time I was talking with people, I was reminding myself of what I'm, I'm, how I've always been in the past, what I'm like. And I think that improved it. And, and you know what? It, it's one of those things. It just becomes a habit. So... I hope it was a temporary aberration. Another thing that stands out for me, Greg, listening to you is that that your language is very accessible. And yet when you were talking about dress codes before, I often think that language is a good indicator of it can either be inclusive or it can exclude people from the club. So using jargon or using sort of business speak reminds you that if you don't understand it, you're not in the club, you don't deserve to be in it. I'm interested in terms of, you obviously seem to have mastered the skill of making your language accessible. How have you done that? I think it is, it's a bit like the dressing actually, which is, it's a reaction against the use of language as a sort of barrier. Um, it, it creates a club. Sometimes some of the terms that sound like jargon in any sector are useful shortcuts when you're in it. But, you know, look, our job here is, you know, everyone in Britain's got to use the product we sell, energy. In fact, you know, everyone in the developed world, and hopefully one day we'll get to the developing world as well. And they've been excluded from it in a way. Most energy companies, their strategy was pretend we don't exist, keep sending the bills and hope we get paid. But actually, you know, we've created this massive pink, purple, I don't really know, out there brand because we want to be loud and proud about how energy can make the world better and what we can do as part of that. If I'm going to do that, I've got to speak in a way that is meaningful to people. But the same goes with teams. Like you, can, you can recruit incredibly talented people who've come through different routes. And if you're using that exclusive language, the MBA or, or whatever it might be, you're not going to get the best out of that talent. And I guess the last bit for me, I bet we've all been in meetings where at some point, halfway through the meeting, someone asks a question that reveals that everyone in the meeting didn't actually realise what we're talking about. How can 
smart people with positions of authority wasting all the matter. And thank goodness we sometimes find that happens. There'll be times it happens. We don't even know it. So using straightforward language, I think is incredibly important for the way we talk to customers, you know, to politicians, to the media, to each other, to recruits. Yeah. That is a good reminder, though, isn't it, Greg, that people look at you and assume, well, if you're the CEO of a business like that and you've had previous business successes, you must know exactly what you're doing. The reason why you sometimes find yourself in a room where everyone finally admits they haven't got a clue what's being discussed is because we all have imposter syndrome. We're all worried about being vulnerable and none of us want to be the first one to put our hands up and utter the famous words, I don't know. So what do you do to go about making sure that Octopus is a vulnerable place to work and that people can be totally honest if if they don't know? Yeah. So one of my favorite things is the way that we deal with issues on social media. Customers raise issues with us all the time on Twitter and Facebook um, in particular. And I think, you know, the way we respond to those, if we screw it up, we just go, you know, yikes, looks like we screwed up. I'll get a boffin on it or whatever it will be. And, and really, you know, starting with that kind of thing, that is, it's, it's much easier to live your life when you admit those flaws then when you try and cover them up, it's a slight segue, but someone I once worked with, a brilliant guy, uh, Nick Gillett, he said, never tell a lie because you have to remember every one of them forever. And I think that, so in a way, like the, the vulnerable thing is a bit like that, isn't it? Which is everything you're covering up, you have to cover it up everywhere. So authenticity is a really big thing for you, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is because I think a lot of time, large companies have got this long history when some of the stuff they've done was right and some was wrong. And if you've always covered up what was wrong, you're narrowing down, massively narrowing down what you can say. You end up saying, well, we can't say that because we once did this. We can't say that because we once said that. Actually, if if you're able to be authentic and say, yeah, we said that, actually, that might not have been right. Or we said that, but the world's changed. We said that, but there's new information. We did that thing, and now we're going to put it right. That really matters. So I'll tell you what, a massive strategic version for me, right? About 18 months ago, I sat there, I was thinking, you know what, like, we, we're meant to be a green energy company, and yet we sell a billion pounds a year of gas. And, and by the way, today that might be three or four, maybe three billion pounds of gas. The reality is we are responsible for selling a massive amount of carbon emitting pollution, right? And yet we're meant to be a green energy company. What should we do about that? And I had a crisis moment. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, should we um, just stop selling gas? But we can't do that because our customers still need it. And if we force them to buy it elsewhere, it, it reduces our ability to drive change. So we, what we've got to do is, we've got to be honest, though, that selling gas is a bad thing. Today, it's a necessary evil, and we've got to create a future in which gas isn't necessary. And that's when we did all the work to identify that, for example, electric heat pumps are likely to be the future of decarbonized heating. And then that let us say, right, we're going to invest 10 million quid in developing the technology, building a training center, and driving that change. But really, that came from the admission to ourselves that we were doing something that we couldn't be proud of. When I'm listening to you speak, Greg, I'm reminded of that model that I think it was quoted in the Harvard Review years ago of like a lot of people feel that they're almost hostages. And I think the energy company is for, from a consumer, you're almost a hostage, as you described, that you don't see them, you just get your bill every quarter. And what you're trying to do is create at the other end of that scale, apostles, people that are proud to be associated with you and recognise the mission that you're on. What lessons have you learned in trying to take your customers from that hostage mindset to that apostle advocate mindset? I think the first one is when we set out to do this, 
a lot of people said to us it was wrong-headed that customers didn't care who their energy company was they never would care they just want the lights to come on but actually you know our view was we think it's just because no one's tried to get them to care it doesn't suit you if your business model is basically inherited a bunch of companies at privatization and you want to keep charging them the most you can do without causing problems and i think it took a real leap of faith because everything in our business model requires that we were correct there. You know, the fact that, for example, we can charge a lower price, uh, a sustainable long-term price, requires us not to lose customers as much as other companies do, which means we've got a close relationship. The, the, the belief that customers can use energy differently is critical to a cheap, renewable world because... A lot of people worry that with wind and solar, when it's not windy and not sunny, we've got no energy. But we need to flip that on its head and say, when it is windy and when it is sunny, we've got abundant, cheap, super cheap, clean energy. So how can we make the most of it at those times? Which, by the way, means having an electric car with an intelligent charger, having an electric heating system that's kind of grid aware, that sort of thing. We had to sort of show that customers can care about energy not, I mean, it doesn't mean they have to be a geek about it. It just means that they can know that with an energy company that's going to look after them. And they know that if there's a problem, they can phone us up and we'll look after, you know, that sort of thing, right? And so I guess what we had to do was drive that change for everything else to work. So how did you go about doing that then? Because I can imagine there's a lot of cynicism or, or even scepticism of, well, you know, this has never been tried before, so why would it work now? How did you almost keep your resolve in the face of that kind of cynicism? Well, the first thing is, sort of one of our founding team is a is our creative director this guy called pete miller i i worked with him in a previous business he's the loveliest guy but he's unbelievably smart and really understands how people you know the fundamental ways in which people think and behave and and pete was able to start thinking about like you know what are the things that cause distrust or disinterest in a sector like this and then what do we need to do differently to change that now i don't know any other energy company's got a creative director but, you know, the sort of thing we would do would be when you sign up, you get an email from me. And if you reply to it, it comes to me. And up to a million customers, I dealt with every single one that came to me. Even when I was on holiday, you know, every night, about midnight, I'd switch on my computer and deal with all the emails that come to me from customers. I think that went on to about one and a half million customers. It's the kind of thing that there's no emails that come from a no reply. Your bill, you can reply to. If you don't like your bill, hit reply. And lots of proof points like that, that, you know, not just visible, but that change the way things work for you. Down to, we'll lend people infrared cameras for free that plug into their phone so they can find out where there's drafts and leaks in their homes. Tell you what we did this winter. I was coming home from work one night and it was bitterly cold. And we're in an energy crisis. And I was thinking there were going to be, forgive me for this, but old ladies sitting there, scared to put their heating on in a cold home. And some of them will be my customers. I remembered there was a, a PhD engineer that I was talking to who said, look, it takes 30 times less energy or something to heat a person than it is to, does to heat a whole home. And so I phoned up our um, marketing director. And I said, look, can we get hold of some electric blankets? And, and when people are scared about their bills, send them an electric blanket so at least they can stay warm. Now, I wish we could do something about the bills. That's a global crisis. But we can do something about the person. And um, she literally bought 5,000 electric blankets next day and when people, particularly those with mobility issues, are struggling, we sent them a blanket. We, we didn't tell anyone. It was just doing the right thing. But someone posted it on social media, and, 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 and then it became sort of better known. And it's the kind of thing you worry about. Are you going to get criticised as an energy company because you haven't 
yeah, the prices are so high that people have to worry. Although, honestly, there's nothing, like, literally, we do everything we can on that. Or are people going to see that what you try to do is help? And it was the latter. And it was actually really heartwarming to see this reaction. And the reality is it costs 4p an hour to use an electric blanket and about £4 a day to heat a whole home. Now, you know, on average, we found people saving 300 quid a year on their energy bill once they got an electric blanket. So that kind of thinking that says, you know, that we care about the person, not about the molecule or the electron. So interesting. And, I, and again, it comes back to you making sure that your core belief of doing the right thing is at the heart of your decisions. Because actually, we can all think of certain media outlets that would love a story about an energy company giving out um, electric blankets because they can go, oh, wonderful. Let's do a, a big headline splash about we can't heat your home, but we can give you an electric blanket. But as long as you, and this is a great lesson for everyone listening to this, as long as you are making a decision that in your heart you know is the right thing, even if it gets criticised, well, you're kind of insulated, aren't you, from that criticism because of the fact you know you're doing the right thing? Or are you? I mean, when you get criticised or when Octopus gets criticised and you know that you're trying to do the right thing, how does it feel? You know what? I, I don't mind it too much with the media. And by the way, look, I, I think everyone's got a job to do. Um, everyone's got a job to do. And I think, um, you know, journalists are often... You know, they're right, they're trained to be cynical about the claims companies make. So it's entirely reasonable that we, you know, don't get a free ride for just saying we're nice people and everything, right? And we have to demonstrate time and time and time again. And when we make a mistake, it's fair enough to hold it up. And, and even sometimes when we've done the right thing, it's understandable that people will be cynical. I think the ones that hurt me are actually the individual customer things where, you know, sometimes we've got it wrong. And I look at what we've done and our team are brilliant, but they're human. They, they look after 30,000 customers a day or thereabouts with often incredibly difficult situations. And sometimes they'll get that wrong. And, and, and sometimes people think we got it wrong as an act of malice. And that is heart-wrenching. And I think the other one is in social media or something, you'll see people who assume malice from the outset before they actually look at what's happened. And, and I think sometimes that gets very personal. But I think I, I get upset when... And I, I don't get upset about it, but the ones that are most likely to cause sort of that are, are the very personal ones where we've either let someone down or assumed to have done so badly. There's one thing that's quite interesting. So forgive me for this, but there's a phone call we got from a, a customer where actually I don't think we got it that wrong, but it was clearly very upset. And he said to the team member, does Greg Jackson still live at? And then he read out my address. And then he went on to say, because if he does... And I have to go around there to sort it out. Do I have to disembowel his sons? And, and this was someone who kind of worked out where I lived. He knew that I had a couple of sons. It was, that was very personal. Oh, my goodness. I mean, not, how did that make you feel? I mean, that's, that's scary stuff, right? It is. And I, you know, it's interesting. The team were like, like, should we talk to the police? And I was like, actually, looking at the case and understanding what happened, I didn't think it was really a credible death threat. And um, I had to talk to my boys about... You know, what might happen during the crisis? You know, during the energy crisis, there may be media attention um, and there may be, you know, people in public may say things to them, people at school or whatever. And, and how old are your boys, Greg? Five and 15. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I'd forgotten about the bit about them in this, this recording. Um, and, and, and I played, I played just an example and um, uh, to the 15 year old. And I just said, look, you know, if there's ever anything, and he said, honestly, dad, I go to school in London. I'm not worried about that. So <laughs> it was a, a good funny moment at the end of what I thought was going to be a very serious conversation, but there you go. And was there any part of you that thought, 
maybe the best thing is to pick up the phone and just speak to this person and explain that I am a real human being with real emotions and real sons and I'm doing my best for them. Yeah, you know, I do sometimes do that. And uh, you know what? Eight out of 10 times you see someone being nasty on social media about a company or about, uh, in our case, our company or our team. Uh, when the team speaks to them, they're lovely as pie. And I think one of your recent guests said you don't know what's going on in someone else's life. You don't know what they're dealing with. And um, I think that applies here. We don't know what's going on in the lives of those people, what's gone in their, their history and their background that caused them to behave in that way. But very often when we help them, it, it melts away. Now, there's a few, by the way, who, who I think when we speak to them, it doesn't help. And so on that one, I chose not to. But uh, what I was going to say on, on, on the ones where you know, they can be very aggressive in social media and quite nice. A lot of the time people are trained to be aggressive in, in, in dealing with companies. You know, you'll see a lot of kind of advocacy that says like, you know, go out there, tell the company, tell them what, you know. And, and, and so they've been trained to do it. And, and maybe with some companies, it's the only way to behave. I've certainly done my best to avoid losing my rag with a couple of telephony providers, should we say. So, you know, I think um, we can't hold against people that that's the only thing that's worked elsewhere. So Greg, can you tell us about, I'm interested in your business and I'll give you the example of like for a long time, you know, Virgin was always associated with Richard Branson. So the guy with the beard, the, the, you know, like not wearing shirts and he became synonymous with the brand of the business. And I'm interested in how you get your approach, which is about empathy. It's about having a clear sense of mission. It's about being essentially decent and accessible. How do you replicate that at all levels of your organization? You've got 3,000 staff working for you. I'm interested in that followership. How do you develop that culture? It's a good It's a good question, this actually, Greg, because what we often find with people is, for you, this is your mission. This is your life's work. You're fully invested in this and you'll be rightly rewarded. Well, you've got some staff, you know, earning the living wage working for you. And how do you get them to buy into your mission? Yeah, so I think there are probably three dimensions, forgive me for saying that. Um, but the first one is how we organise ourselves. So um, every Friday, we, ate, we do something called family dinner, 4.15pm Friday. We get the whole company together across the world. We do across the world every other week, and then we do individual countries the weeks in between. And um, it's to be half an hour, 45 minutes on Zoom, and I'll talk to the entire company about what's gone on that week, largely the positive stuff, but we'll talk about negative stuff too. And we do it in a way that reinforces, it's not a boring business presentation. You know, it's as technically broken as the Eurovision Song Contest, which seems to add to the fun. And then um, has uh, like, you know, lots of different voices, but led by me and saying, look, this is why we're doing it. This is what's good about this and celebrating together, but doing so in, in, in a sort of really, in the same way we're talking now. And, and so we have a conversation across the company every week like that. The second thing is, look, you talked about pay. And now, we definitely have a range of pay, but we've, first of all, we've got a salary cap in the business. No one in this business earns like you know, this sort of crazy money that some companies may pay. And why is that? Yeah, I think, look, a, a lot of the time we worry about the differential between the highest paid and lowest paid in a company, right? And, and so part of handling that differential is limiting what the highest paid can get. And does that apply to you as well, Greg? So you, you you come into that? I was, my salary was the salary cap, but then I moved on to minimum wage. So <laughs> pretty much everyone's paid more than me now. But I mean, obviously that's part of a complex picture. I'm not, you know. But yeah, and, and I think what it did also do though is it's very tempting when you're recruiting people to kind of end up getting into a, a sort of bidding war. 
And the salary cap really helps avoid that. But every single member of the team, everyone in the company is a shareholder and holds enough shares it will be life-changing if we are ultimately successful. And we've you know, already had a couple of occasions when some of the people could sell some shares. And you know, for, for someone working custom operations to be able to put down the deposit for a flat has been life-changing. And I've seen like huge benefits from that. And it, to me, that's both sensible from a business perspective because it, it means we are all aligned on the same thing in terms of business success. But it's also socially something that I'm really proud of. And then the third dimension is that people often talk about the mission of companies, right? Purpose-driven companies. And loads of companies try and wrap a mission around whatever they were doing anyway. Um, you know, our purpose is to make the world a better place by selling more soft drinks or whatever, right? And that's fine, by the way. We were lucky enough to be founded with this mission to drive cheaper, cleaner energy around the world. And, and that's one that, you know, is really appealing to people. But alongside that, people talk about the purpose, but I don't think they talk enough about the process of work. Is work enjoyable, right? And, and so, you know, when you look at some companies, you know, that, that don't have the purpose, but they can be incredibly enjoyable places to work. And I think that's massive. So, and there's loads of purpose-driven companies that aren't massively enjoyable places to work. So, so our job is to really try and make sure that the everyday working here is enjoyable as well as purposeful. And I think put those three dimensions together and, and you know, relentlessly focus on that. And for people listening to this with other much smaller businesses than Octopus, or even businesses where they're worrying about their business rates and their heating bills and everything else as we potentially enter into a recession. Do you believe that all of those businesses can still put their people first? They can still put the environment first. They can still do the right thing and be a successful business. It's not a kind of one or the other approach. Times like this are brutal, right? And it's easy for leaders, commentators, politicians, whatever to say, it's tough times, but tough times manifest in you know, absolute misery for, for people. So first of all, I think as a society, we should be doing what we can to minimise the pain of a genuine global issue right now, which is why, for example, we you know, publicly been very supportive of measures like the ones the government have brought in to help reduce energy bills over the winter. I don't know whether it's enough, but it's definitely the right kind of thing to do. But it's also economically right because it reduces inflation, which reduces the spiral that could cause major issues. But I think there is a thing that says, like, how do I put my people first at a time like this as a leader? Because at a time like this, if you can put people first at a time like this, then as you come out of this time, they'll put you first. And, and so for the long run, I think that works. Now, easy to say. But there is some truth in it. I think we can ask ourselves, well, what can I do? The other bit, though, is that, you know, for example, at times of recession, I've had in other business, I've had to let people go before through no fault of their own just because of the company's situation. And in a way, you, you can't always help everyone. What you can do is make sure that you do everything you do for the right reasons and then really look after the ones that are going to be part of the journey with you and if that requires shrinking down the team and things like that, better you do that than you fail for everyone. And, and I think there is that phrase, that if you can't look after yourself, you can't look after anyone else. And, and so I think really you do have to say, look, we, we've got to, the, the people are going to be part of this journey, we're going to look after. And for others, we'll do the best we can. So take us inside your, like the kind of questions that you ask yourself internally then, Greg. So when times are tough and you've got to make a tough decision, what are the first three questions that you'll ask internally before you make that call? I think the first one is, if it's a decision you're making in private, 
what would it do if anyone else knew about it, right? I, th I think integrity is often, like one way of thinking about integrity is, is this really the right thing? Does it stand up to scrutiny? And I think you ask yourself that. The second one, if it's, you know, if it's a, a tough decision, is, is it truly aligned with our stated principles? Because if it's not, it's not the right thing, right? You, you, you can't, as soon as you allow a gap to open up between those, that's a, a fragility that in the long run will, will bite you. Even if you can say to your people and your staff, this financially secures our business, guys, it goes against all my principles. You know, let's say we're working with a, a state that we would never go near and near, but we're going to do it because it's guaranteeing us a billion pounds in extra revenue. Would you, you wouldn't make that decision. Look, I think it's incredibly hard, right? But there's a couple of things. I mean, we have walked away from an investor who wanted to use us as a vehicle for doing stuff that I didn't believe in. And so no, I've, I've been there. If it was necessary for us to turn into a company that were denying climate change in order to survive, I'd rather not do it, you know. So I think th there's got to be a line. And you asked about three questions, I guess, and the third one is, we had it this year, actually, when we were, um, we had to raise our prices for the energy crisis. And frankly, customers couldn't switch away because no energy company is really doing much in terms of getting new customers. So we could rise them to the maximum of the price cap. And that would be better for our financial situation. We'd still lose money this year, but it would be, you know, it's a 50 million quid decision. And we chose to look after customers with that 50 million quid. Because that's the promise we'd made. We'd said we would always do all we can to keep prices down. And the reality was our operating costs are about 50 quid less than anyone else's. And we've always said that enables us to be better value for customers. And we chose to stay true to that even when we had the opportunity not to. That's the kind of thing, though, that people don't necessarily recognise. So how do you deal with people being ungrateful or just even ambivalent towards you, you doing what you consider to be the right thing? How do you sort of keep, like, keep your own morale high? Look, it's about you, the story you tell yourself, right? And I think um, it is funny, like, there's a, a few products and services we've got that are hugely loss-making, and we do them because they're the right thing or because they're about innovating in a new market or something. And sometimes customers get grumpy if we change the price. It's still hugely loss-making, but not as cheap as it was. And sometimes the team are like, how ungrateful, right? You know, uh, we've given you an amazing bargain. Now you're grumpy when it's not quite such an amazing bargain. But we have to remember that the customers are doing the right thing by themselves. Look, Greg, we're going to move on in a, in a second to our quick fire questions. Um, but I just, I really want to have this conversation with you very quickly, because I think that perhaps like me, you're looking at the world thinking, why are we doing things that are killing the environment when the only thing that actually matters is the environment? You know, you, it might increase the turnover of a business or a country, might make billions of pounds through turning on coal-powered um, factories. But there will be no countries in 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years' time if we don't act now. So we've just created a coronavirus jab, right, which they did in a matter of months, which normally takes years. Why are we not applying that same life-or-death approach to solving the issues around the environment? Honestly, I'm completely with you. The reality is the pandemic was horrific, and we shut down the global economy to deal with it. And, and, and you yeah, know, the the economic problems we're seeing now are a result of that. But the pandemic was nothing compared to climate change. Climate change will wipe out our species and plenty of others if we don't do something about it. And by the way, the pace 
the extreme weather events, you know, no, we, we can now say with certainty the extreme weather events we're seeing are largely a result of climate change. The fact that temperatures in Pakistan now are barely survivable by humans. It is literally bakingly hot. The devastating floods. I mean, Australia's had fire and flood at the same time. Last week, there were six extreme weather events in the US alone. It was snowing in Mexico in June. So what's the problem? I think the way that humans behave is we keep on behaving the way we did right to the point where it's no longer possible because we assume there'll be a solution. And we assume, by the way, that, that, that someone will make that solution happen. One of the challenges with climate change is, you know, people say, well, there's no point us doing anything because China emits more than we do. Now, there may be a moral question that we emitted loads in our history, and not, but actually, if everyone goes around just saying, well, there's no point me doing anything because someone else will, we will never solve this. The irony of today is that, like, first of all, we, we started inventing, creating renewable energy at scale. To tackle climate change, you know, maybe two decades ago, we started doing it. It was more expensive. We had to subsidize it. Today, it's cheaper than fossil fuels. It was cheaper than fossil fuels before the crisis. And now we've discovered, thanks to the, the horrific invasion of Ukraine, the extent to which fossil fuels once again provide both the leverage and the funding for you know, horrific regimes. That should be the final nail in the coffin for fossil fuels. Now, today, there are hundreds of thousands of jobs in the UK dependent on fossil fuel. People, the vast majority of cars run on fossil fuels. And the vast majority of homes are heated by fossil fuels. Of course, everyone looks at it saying, well, what about my situation? And, and I think it's incumbent on leaders, business leaders, to say, look, regardless of what, I, what my business does today, we have access to the solutions. We need governments to help. It's crazy, for example, that in the UK, electricity, which is increasingly clean, attracts something like 90% of the taxes on energy. Gas is virtually tax-free in comparison. So we need the economic signals that will then you know, cause companies to invest in creating this cleaner future. Now, the good news, by the way, is despite all of the economic and financial interests that have been lined up against the renewable transition, renewables are increasingly winning. And things like the current crisis, which is horrific, are causing, you know, the UK is going to accelerate the massive amount of offshore wind. We're going to do more onshore. Europe's going to double its onshore wind. But we cannot, as citizens, let our governments and companies keep pretending that this is harder than it is and more expensive. The reality is, moving away from fossil fuels, will save us money and it will create a cleaner, cheaper, quieter world. And it's not just about climate change. Local air pollution kills 30,000 people on average in the UK every year. That's every six years, the equivalent of the pandemic. And yet we just let it happen. So I think what we need is citizens not to let companies and governments get away with telling them it's going to cost money. It's not. And we can put the final nail in the coffin of fossil fuels. The first industrial revolution was generated by energy. That energy, unfortunately, was digging up hundreds of millions of years worth of dead trees and burning them in a very short space of time. But actually, like this renewable revolution really is the chance for a new industrial revolution, a second one powered by green energy, whether it be building wind farms or creating the technology that optimizes solar, whether it be replacing our entire heating fleet with decarbonized, super efficient electric heat pumps. And then things like, you know, people worry about what about when it's not windy and sunny. But imagine steelworks, which have got access to free energy when it's windy. 
suddenly we can start having like, you know, heavy industries coming back, but this time they'll be completely clean. So the final question before I quit fires then, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future for our planet? I'm hugely optimistic on renewable energy. There are things we, we all worry about. But we've got to remember that humans throughout history have always thought the past was better. Like, when you get to my age, you always think the past was better than the future. So <laughs> I've got to challenge myself and think, look, look at the great stuff social media does, right? You know, um, look at the phenomenal interactions you get between young people who care about causes and each other with a passion that can only inspire us. So, yeah, I guess ultimately pretty optimistic. Right, quick fire questions, um, and you can answer these as, as quickly or as, as not quickly as you like. The three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into. I think the first one is uh, respecting other people. Um, really understanding that you know, if people have got the talent, brains to survive in today's society, to pay mortgages, bring up kids and everything else, they can do pretty much anything a company asks of them. And actually, you know, we live in a world of dumbing everything down. And then you saw, you know, TED Talks, these long videos of someone just type talking, people love it. Let's respect people. I think the second one for me is don't compromise. And the reason I say that is, look, people think of compromise as a good thing, but the reality is it means neither person is getting what they want. And actually by having a longer conversation and really digging into what we want, we can often find solutions that meet both people's needs. So that desire we often see to just meet in the middle actually precludes better solutions. And I think the third one is, we talked about a lot, is be authentic. Learn to be comfortable being yourself. And I think that is better for you, but it's also better for other people because they're actually dealing with the, the real person, the real view, not trying to guess what's going on. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? If it's to change something, then I think that I had the idea for Octopus Energy in about 2011, but I didn't have the confidence to go out and raise the funding from big investors until 2015. And I think, um, you know, we could be four years ahead of where we are now if I'd had that confidence. Just to break away quickly then from the quickfire element, where did the confidence come from to do it? I met Simon Rogerson. He's the founder of a company called Octopus Investments. It's a big investment fund. We met for a coffee about something entirely different, but when I discovered that he was one of the biggest investors in venture capital in the UK, in startup tech firms, and one of the biggest investors in renewable generation, I thought this is the guy that can back this idea. And so towards the end of a cup of coffee, I metaphorically dragged the business plan off the shelf, blew off the dust and said, here's an idea. And five or six weeks later, we shook hands on a deal to back it. I just wish I'd done that four years earlier. Hey, you did it in the end. That's the main thing. Exactly, exactly. And it's a reminder that you will miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. So well done for taking that shot. Um, how important is legacy to you? I don't think legacy is massively important to me at all. I think the responsibility to do your best is the thing that matters most. And, and if that leaves a great legacy, fantastic. And I think for me, it's just always knowing, like, you know, whatever high watermark I happen to hit, I can be really pleased I got to it. What advice would you give to a 16-year-old Greg just starting out? I'd say be more like your gran, right? Isn't it interesting that old people are often, they're happy because they've finally come to terms with who they are and they're confident with it, whatever that may be. And I think, you know, when you're young, you know, and, and this isn't about young people, I mean, just we spend a lot of our lives worrying about what others think. You know, what does our mum think? What do our friends think? What do our housemates think? What does my boss think? What do, what do they all think of me? 
And the reality is we end up then doing stuff to please other people rather than doing stuff that is actually about fulfilling our own potential and our own dreams. And finally, Greg, um, your last message really to the people listening to this, what would you say is your one golden rule for living a high performance life? I think it's to be relentless. For example, every morning I get up the moment the alarm goes off, I don't hit the snooze button. That, that's not a boast, by the way. It's kind of a decision I made because I found that as soon as I stop being relentless, it very quickly spirals to um, you know, dramatically less. And what time is that alarm? 6.40 most days. And how strict are you in terms of the way you work your day out and the way that you live your life? You know, how, how specific are you about how you do things to get yourself to that point? Because I, this is obviously this isn't part of the quick fire, but there is definitely a... One thing I'm always really careful about on these conversations, we can do all the lovely stuff about purpose and belief and all of that. But actually, I think young people need to also hear a conversation about hard work and relentless. I mean, Stephen Gerrard came on the podcast and described it as all in. Um, Could you give us a little bit on that? First of all, one thing I do that I think is unusual is I don't pack my day with meetings. I'm religious about having lots of time outside meetings because in, in the one hour that someone wants to have a meeting, I could make 10 phone calls or I could drop by the desks of half a dozen team members um, and I can be available for people to deal with what's going on that day. So one thing for me is your time is far too precious to let it get soaked up on other people's meeting requests relentlessly through the day. It's quite funny, when, when, when I got on UPA, she came from a very large software company. And um, I said, oh, I've got a lot of meetings tomorrow. And she said, well, where I used to work, my job was to pack from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day, hour by hour by hour. And I was like, whoa, how does that person get any thinking time? How does it get any, any time to reset? And how does it get to do anything proactive that changes the world? Which takes me to the second thing. It's like, it's really easy every day and every week to start with a to-do list, which is all the things that you have to do. The really hard bit, but the bit that's most important, is to create a to-do list of the stuff that's going to make the world different tomorrow than it was yesterday. What new thing are we going to do what are we going to add to our list, right? And it's really, people often like, often people say, but we're so busy, we're doing so much. It's like, it's not enough, right? You know, our mission is to drive change. And if we're not doing it, someone else will. It's brilliant. Greg, what a fascinating and awesome conversation. I think that, you know, too often in big business, empathy is not spoken about enough. And I think that that hour long conversation is a reminder of the power, I guess, of and it's not about self-confidence or arrogance or anything like that. It's just about having this real fundamental belief that the decisions you're making are the right decisions. And I think you are the perfect example of of someone who clearly believes so strongly in what they're doing and the direction they're heading that it gives them a real clarity. Don't you think, Damien? Yeah, it's been a real privilege to listen to you share with such honesty and authenticity as well, Greg. I know that you spoke about them as some of your trademark behaviours and it's been a privilege to... Uh, to observe it in action. It's funny, Damien, isn't it? Because behind you, you've got um, the five steps, um, I guess, into a winning mindset. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, there's no point winning if it's not the game that you want to play, right? And, and isn't it interesting? I talked about motorcycle racing earlier. Casey Stoner was a world champion motorcycle racer at a young age, and then he resigned. He gave up. He retired because he didn't enjoy it. Valentino Rossi was an amazing, relentless winner of world championships, and then he stopped winning for a whole pile of reasons, but he kept on racing because he loved it. And I think that's the thing to me, right? There are so many people that set out to be a winner, but they're winning a game that they're doing for someone else's reason or for the wrong reason. And I think the great privilege I've got is this is the stuff I care about. Brilliant.
I might have guessed wrong, but I keep thinking about your mum and a clear moral compass that she gave you all those years ago that is uh, helping you to change the world. So well done. Well, you're right. It's exactly from there. I might give her a call after this just to let her know we just had this chat. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Damien. Jake. Look, it's a challenging time for um, for everyone trying to pay their bills at the moment. And I think we have to be really aware of that when we have a conversation and we laud the work of a CEO of an energy firm. And there's no doubt that, you know, Greg, as he explained in that interview, tries to have his morals in the right place, tries to make the right decisions. Um, and I would imagine that it's a it's a hard world now for him to work out the way forward for customers, isn't it? I, I see that they're doing what they can, but I... I don't know. I kind of think they can always do more, right? Yeah. And I agree. And I think there's some stat around over the last 30 years or so that the pay of chief execs has far started to outstrip the average earnings of their staff. So I think in the 1970s, I think it was something like 10 times the average. Today, it's something like 250 times. So I think sometimes from the outside, it appears that these chief execs might be sat in ivory towers, disconnected from the troubles, the difficulties and challenges of the average man and woman on the street. I didn't sense that with Greg. I do sense that although he comes from a position of privilege, he did have genuine empathy. He was trying to understand whether it was through the symbolism of those electric blankets being sent out to his most vulnerable customers or putting himself down to a minimum wage. I think things like that keep him connected and I think his heart is in the right place in what is obviously a difficult and challenging time for many. Yeah. And obviously, you know, just to remind people that we recorded that conversation before the current energy crisis. So we weren't able to ask him about exactly how he's dealing with the issues he's got in front of him now. But I think that people like Greg, businesses like Octopus, they all have to take responsibility. We took all the time on the high performance, right, yeah. about responsibility. And I just would love to see them all get together and say, look, this is no longer about which energy business is going to beat that energy business it's no longer about turnover and profit it is about protecting the people because that's what we're going to need this winter protection for people yeah responsible capitalism is at the heart of this it's not you know make a few quid less for your shareholders but actually invest that in building relationships and trust with with your customers you know maybe start to consider that for a short period and we didn't get into that per se with Greg, but I do think his heart is in the right place. And I think more people like him being willing to have those conversations will help the more vulnerable in our society. Fully agree. Thank you, mate. Thanks, mate. Well, look, as always, huge thanks goes to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series and for every episode of the High Performance Podcast. Thank you to Greg Jackson. Thank you to PwC. Thanks to the whole team for creating today's episode. Finn, Hannah, Will, Eve, Gemma, Cal and everyone else working on high performance. And remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic and we'll see you very soon.